All right, welcome back, everyone. Um, Cody, we are recording for the second time this week, um, and the second fishing podcast in a row, right? Yeah, I was just going to say, back-to-back fishing episodes, which I don't know that we've had, so this will be a nice change of pace for the listeners, I think. Well, I think that uh, given the time of year, I mean, we're, uh, if, if you look at like the 13 seasons of the Midwest, I think we're in fool's spring at the moment. Um, you guys might be in true winter or, uh, or uh, late winter. I think we're going to hit late winter tomorrow, but definitely full of spring with 50 degrees. And I think people are getting a taste of some heat, taste of some sun. And I mean... Once again, I'm sad because the ice is over, so I really just want stuff to melt and get warm so I can hit open water. Yeah, it so, feels like winter has settled in pretty good and just kind of stayed forever, so I am ready for a nice thaw and, and some green grass and spring activities for sure. Absolutely. And and while steelhead are a spring activity, I think my favorite month to fish for steelhead, favorite two weeks to fish for steelhead are the first two weeks of March because it's still just cold enough to keep um, a lot of the fair weather fishermen away, but there's a ton of fish in the system and I love it. And and it's like that last little winter kind of a feel activity, but you break into spring. So I'm excited for tonight's talk. We have Matt Gaylor back on, uh, head honcho over at Lake Effect, Lake Effect Lures. Yes, yes. Lake Effect. Well, I wasn't sure if it was at Lake Effect Lures, Lake Effect Lure Company. I just oh, know just I just know it was Lake Effect. The head honcho. He's five three, but he's the head honcho. He is a podcast podcast alumnus. That's right. You were talking uh about how earlier in the week you interviewed somebody uh about smallmouth, and now tonight you get to interview a big mouth about something different. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, guys. No, anytime, man. I appreciate you coming on. Um, well, I guess, um, Cody, we already, we already touched on what we were working on recently two nights ago, so I guess we'll probably skip that. because uh, Yeah, not much has changed in these two <laughs> days. I'm pretty much still working on the same stuff. So, Yeah, I bought some fish and stuff today. That's about it. I mean, that's as close as I've gotten. So, Yeah, um, I think I was kind of waiting until after this podcast before I start looking into what I need to be buying. So it's on hold, fair. but soon to that's be determined. Fair. Well, if you spend 60 bucks on fishusa.com, you get uh, free shipping. So, I did notice that, actually. I noticed that today. So I'm <laughs> sure they'll be getting some business at some point, along yeah. with many others. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, so we'll kind of jump right in here. Um, Matt, you guys had a – it looked like you guys had a pretty good winter in Michigan for ice fishing. Uh, also, for Lake Effect, you guys released a new rod this year, which – um, Travis gave me the review on that and it sounds like I need to pick one up for next year. Um, your jigs fed a lot of, uh, fed a lot of my freezer, um, this winter too out in Pennsylvania. So, uh, yeah. How'd everything go out there for you guys? Well, for us, the quality of the winter was incredible. I mean, I remember in 2014, I, I kind of used 2014 as the standard for comparison of of what a winner is uh supposed to be but um 2014 i bottomed out my powerhead on gull lake here in southwest michigan um at the end of january and so that was about 20 there was a little bit of snow on the ice but uh something like 28 inches um of ice and so that was a substantial um amount in comparison to what we've seen 
in recent years. And in fact, it's been so tough to get consistent ice in the last four or five years. So this year was super refreshing if you're an ice fisherman. Um, similar type stuff, 20 plus inches of ice in a lot of areas. Um, and so just made for really, really solid fishing, kind of that natural um, first ice progression um, into that harder season of fishing. And then, you know, now we're in that late ice kind of season where, in my opinion, it's one of the better uh, parts of the season, but a lot of people's minds are starting to shift as you get options to get on the river. And so, um, yeah, just great, uh, great time for us, great time for anglers. Uh, we did release some new stuff, which was great. And we got wonderful reviews on that as well. And um, we're excited to release several more things next winter. So hold off on that rod. Uh, there's a better version coming out next year. I'll just keep it at that. Um, you heard well, it here so- first. You, you got me excited now because that, <laughs> yeah. that new one you guys came out with this year, you described it as a power noodle. And like, I really, really love a super, super sensitive tip for like bluegill and crappie and perch and whatnot. And uh, if you've got something that is even better than that, then I'll hang it's, out. It's a little more dialed. I mean, I, I'm, I'm probably going to continue using uh, this model this year that we dropped. Um, and, and then next year we're just kind of um, introducing an elite series version of that. And so it'll be a little bit more sensitive. Um, and like I said, a little more dialed to very, very specific angling. We're also diving a little more into, um, walleye fishing for the winter. We've been working that way. Um, and so next year the rod, sector we'll see a walleye version of our rods as well so we're excited for lots of new things coming next year and uh and this year was just it was wonderful um a lot of nationwide movement um big distributors things of that sort that really kind of pushed us to the next level so busy prepping prepping for next winter right now (laughs) may as well that's awesome though and and you know bringing in more of a walleye line. You know, I saw you guys did, you guys brought in uh, walleye baits this year. Um, did you, you didn't have those last year, right? We did, but they were less, um, just less known. Um, mm-hmm. And last year was a really miserable year over on Saginaw Bay. And, and that's kind of the epicenter um, for, for the use of those particular baits. But we did get a lot more people out using them this year. And then as we uh, moved into the states like Minnesota, Wisconsin, South Dakota, Iowa, we just have a lot more people using um, those baits overall. So they got substantially more popular. Yeah. It only made sense to dive into the walleye market. Um, especially when like, I mean, you mentioned 2014, 2014, 2015 were also years when the Western basin of Lake of Lake Erie froze over. And actually Mm -hmm. I think the entire lake froze over those two years and I fished Erie in 15 and man, um, I mean, from a fishing a- aspect, like no matter where you are listening to this, if Lake Erie ever freezes over and you have an opportunity to go fish the Western basin for walleye through the ice, take the vacation day, drive however far it is 100% worth it. And from a business standpoint, um, having that market there because people in Ohio and Michigan, et cetera, love walleye, they will buy everything to catch one fish that one fish might be 10 pounds and it'll be worth it, but they'll buy everything. 
Yeah. It's a wild market. Yeah. Um, and, th- and there's a lot of people doing kind of their own thing there. But uh, when you've got 60, 80,000 people out on the ice at any given time, um, that's notable. And, and if, if even one of your baits hits in a heavy way, um, that can really carry you for the season. So yeah, yeah it's, a uh, it's been really neat. We're excited for new stuff. And, uh, but I am just like you said that, that March kind of time point hits and your brain switches gears. You see some of these rivers now in years past, we've had open rivers throughout the winter. Yeah. I, I prefer steelhead fishing in like January um if it's possible but uh and and partially because of what you're talking about less guys in the water but also the fish are lethargic you know so you get 80 percent success rate (laughs) versus that uh 30 40 percent because they're you know they're doing a little less of that crazy stuff that acrobatics yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah. the 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 one i remember is the they get to the net and i don't know is if they see the net or if they see you but the barrel roll and they'll just barrel roll and barrel roll. And I mean, they might barrel roll their way into their net. They might barrel roll and just, you know, it might be a buck and they might just cut it on their, on their, on their gums or something. And then you're just sat there wondering like, what did I do wrong? It's like yeah. nothing. It's just what they do. Yeah. They tuck it under those gill plates and snap you off real nice. Oh Make yeah. The gill stupid. plates too. Yeah. Um, well, that's awesome that you guys had a good year. sounds like you guys had a good year fishing. Um, you know, following you guys on Instagram, Facebook, etc. You guys are all over the place and you're killing it. So, uh, congrats to you guys. Um, it's awesome to see. That's for sure. Thanks. Means a lot. Yeah. It's very humbling. What's it like to see that nationwide, uh, distributing? That's gotta be pretty cool. Seeing your stuff like out in the Dakotas, out in Iowa. It is cool. Um, it's really neat, but then you realize very quickly, you have no clue what you're doing. Um, we, <laughs> out that, out that direction of South Dakota, there was a little bit of an exception, but, um, particularly like Minnesota, you just don't run into panfish anglers. And so it's walleye or bust okay. in, sure. in most scenarios. So, um, a lot of the baits, even, even the people who are targeting panfish, um, in, in those States, they're fishing with larger profile baits. Um, so that three and four millimeter tungsten jig, uh, they take a quick look at it and say, yeah, no thanks. Um, which is odd because for me, if, if there's a two millimeter that I could, uh, thread my line through, I'd be on it, um, in an instant because my largest panfish come on the smallest presentation. So, but it, you know, you gotta, again, you gotta kind of feel out the market and see, you know, what they want, but it, it has been really, really cool. It's kind of nice because. At one point, it was like, okay, well, it'd be, it'd be neat to be kind of the, the, the ice brand in Michigan, um, and then we'll see where it goes from there. Uh, and I'm realizing there's a lot of improvements that we can make as we move into those other states. I mean, we can kind of uh, change our lines uh, so that they cater to each state in particular. And for me, that just means there's a lot more opportunity for ideas. Um and we've, we've really been kind of doing that in the last couple of years in the Michigan market, like trying to cater to the specific angler in our state. And if we can find what that angler looks like in each one of those states, I think it'll be um, just a great opportunity to give people something less generic um, 
And that's what we're always kind of moving towards is something more successful than what you're going to find in those big box stores. That, that size of bait thing that holds true out here too, in Pennsylvania, like people okay. just use bigger baits out here. Like, yeah. and, and, and I think, well, they use bigger baits in the lake that I fish. I don't fish all over the state. I fish a lake. It's a giant reservoir. Um, and it's got a ton of crappie in it. Mm-hmm. And like the days where I would finish up, you know, start walking off the ice guys were like, what were you using? And I was like, what do you got? And I was like, Oh, we're, we're, we're using minnows and stuff like that. And I was like, Oh, I'm using a four millimeter Chrome jig with a wax worm on it. And they're like, Oh, that's weird. And I was like, well, they wanted small. They didn't want anything big. And like, yeah. I've done that multiple times where I show people what I have and like, Oh, that is tiny. I'm just like, what are you using? Like, what yeah. are you fishing with right now? And like, some guys will pull up, like, just like, it's like, oh, I have this. And it's like a Swedish pimple mm-hmm. or a really small jig and wrap type style bait. It's just like, yeah, you, you can use that, I guess. But I'm going to go home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think you're really isolating yourself to only a few fish at that point in time. And it doesn't necessarily even mean that those larger range of fish are the only ones you're isolated. I think a lot of people think, um, okay, big bait, big fish, and that can be the case, but on a, on a day where the bite is finicky, if you've got a pool of, let's say 30 fish down there, it doesn't mean that because you have the largest bait that only those larger fish are going to key in on that. I have a lot of smaller fish biting. I mean, the ones that are quick to bite are quick to bite. And, uh, I've had days where I'll be sitting there using a four millimeter and I can get fish to charge, fish to charge, fish to charge, and they just will not commit, turn on a three millimeter and instantly, yep. and I can just smash them. And, and you'll stub off on, you know, fish every now and again, just because that hook is significantly smaller, but I'd rather get 70 attempts and catch 35 fish, than get four attempts and catch three fish. Yeah, absolutely. You know? For sure. So, sure. But, uh, Enough about the small fish. We're yeah. talking big fish tonight. We're talking steelhead. Um, kind of, uh, I guess, I mean, you, we've, we went into your fishing background the last episode we had you on. So we're kind of, we're going to kind of jump ahead to your, uh, graduation into steelhead and, um, kind of how you went about that at first. And then we'll dive into some, some specific stuff. We'll go through setups. We'll go through, where to find them, how to read water, et cetera, give you, give folks an education tonight. How's that sound? Sounds great to me. Awesome. So yeah, so steelhead fishing, you know, you went to school at Grand Valley, west side of the state. You kind of got your start around the Grand Rapids area and north. Um, kind of, I just, how, how did you just, did you just find river steelhead fishing or, or did it kind of find you? Well, I went from Lake steelhead fishing. That was where I started with the Skamania and that was, and that was big, um, and tons of fun. And in the off season, or I guess more, actually that was more of the off season for the majority of, um, steelhead anglers. Cause that was summer. Um, but in the, in the spring and fall, I knew that there were runs of steelhead in the river. And so I just kind of jumped over into the rivers as soon as I got off the pier um, and found fall steelhead fishing. And I really enjoyed that. I had a couple of buddies that did some spring steelhead fishing. And so I'd network with them and, and pick their brain for, you know, presentations and, and what to do um, and where to look. And then um, 
got into that fall steelhead bite. And uh, that's a really cool time because you have a lot of those fish starting to stage and push into the rivers in your late fall. They'll kind of tail um, the kings, the cohos, and the browns. Um, and you'll even find some of them, you know, feeding off the beds, uh, right behind the beds, very similar to how the, the brown trout do um, as they're staging. And then, you know, they'll do the winter layover thing. And, uh, and that's where really that winter fishing shines. You know, typically you don't have a lot of fresh pushes of fish um, throughout that December, January, February phase because uh, you don't usually have those, you know, unless you have a winter with intermittent thaws, you can get a little bit of kind of an insurgence of um, fresh fish. But um, you're kind of picking away at those fish that are that are sitting in the system. And, uh, and so I did that for quite a few years. Um, I loved that opportunity again, to get those more lethargic fish and they're really colored up in the winter, uh, when they've been sitting in there for a while, feeding on bugs and stuff. And, um, and, and mostly you're catching, um, bucks at that point. Um, because naturally what happens is the bucks come in and they, they shine up the gravel, they make the red, which is the bed there for the female to come in, they'll pair up they'll spawn, she'll drop her eggs in the, the rocks and then, um, they'll kind of both back out. Um, but, uh, but I spent a lot of time targeting those fish in the fall, really enjoyed it. A lot of bright presentations and they're a little bit more aggressive because they're feeding at that time. They're not so much thinking about, um, spawning. They're, they're doing the stage thing, but it's a slower staging than you see with a lot of other species. Um, and as you can imagine, they know, I mean, they, they know they've got the winter ahead before they really need to get serious as those water temperatures are dropping. Um, they're going to be waiting for them to start climbing back up into those upper forties <clears throat> before they consider doing anything, um, like making a bed. You'll have one-off fish that will be active in the middle of the winter, but for the, for the most part, they're just kind of coming in, laying, um, you know, again, with the, with the name layover, you know, they're just, they're just kind of laying low, hanging out, waiting for those females to make their initial push in the spring. So that was where, that was where I started. And then, you know, when spring hits, um, naturally everybody's on the water at that point, if, if you know, steelhead and, um, and so then it's just about kind of picking which river system you want to fish. Um, and you just get such a variety depending on, uh, what kind of angler you are, what types of bodies of water you're targeting and, um, and, uh, what presentations you're using. So <clears throat> I, um, I naturally gravitated towards, uh, float fishing. I, I love the subtlety of float fishing. I love that, that drift, drift, slow bobber drop. Um, and then the insanity that follows and, uh, that's a and good so that's way to describe what, it. You know, it's like a, it, there's, there's such a distinct difference between the before and after. Right. Yes. And, uh, and so that's, that's what I think is the natural draw for me. Um, but it's also a really easy way to start steelhead fishing. Um, you don't really have to feel them so much, you know, bottom bouncers, it's very much a, a feel type presentation fly fishing. Um, you know, if you're, um, if you're, using any type of fly. A lot of that is again, a very, very subtle, um, thing to notice. And so I think for me, it was, it was very, um, 
a very easy way of getting the indication that there was a fish there. And, uh, and the water that I fished was really slow. And so the creeks that I learned on, um, were very forgiving in that way. And, and I knew where the fish were biting. So, um, that's kind yeah. of, that's those waters lend itself to float fishing for sure. Yeah. You almost can't bottom bounce when the current isn't strong enough. Um, I mean, you can, but it's, it's a bit more of a challenge. And, uh, and I find that a lot of times where that current is slower, um, quite often you're not going to have a ton of beds in that area. And, and so bottom bouncing isn't as successful. Um, yeah, I could see that. So. And, and, and float fishing is pretty much what we're going to cover tonight. Um, we can kind of touch on bottom, like a bottom bouncing rig mm-hmm. as far as the end of it, but otherwise the rod, the line, it, it's all going to be the same. Um, let, let's start there with with a float rig, um, where would you start as far as describing it? Well, I mean, a float rig can be a ton of different things. I mean, you're going to find your comfort zone, you know, over time and, and find a preference of length of rod, um, of particular line that you're using. But for the most part, um, generally speaking, somebody's either using, um, spinning, uh, setup, or, um, you've got a lot of guys now that are using center pin reels and, and either crappie rods or center pin rods. Um, but generally speaking, you're somewhere between the eight and a half and 13 and a half foot rods. And again, that's, there's a, there's a wide range there, uh, partly because you can target them on small water. You can target them on large rivers. Um, and so those larger river guys, uh, quite a, quite often are using those center pin reels for those extensive drifts. Um, and, and they've got those longer rods to keep that line up, um, and out of the water. Uh, if you're in, if you're in small water and you're used to mending your line, it doesn't really necessarily matter how long of a rod you're using. Um, but honestly, I prefer something a little bit shorter. So I'm not battling the length of the rod and trying to find my way through the brush and, and things like that with something any longer than I need to. Um, yeah, that was something I was going to say, that's something like to compare our setups per se, like I have an 11 foot rod and I have a handle on mine that I can put the reel wherever I want. I don't have a real seat per se. Um, Mm -hmm. so I have it all the way at the bottom to be able to use the length of that rod. You have, I think like a nine foot Mm -hmm. and it's a standard reel setup. So you have about eight inches and then the reel and I'll, I'll be honest. Like when I, when you said like, yeah, my rod's like eight and a half, nine foot long. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I thought they were longer, but then like watching you battle fish, it's like, well, it has everything it needs. Like, and where you fish too, it's not like wide the hell open. It's pretty tight. You've got trees overhead. You've got brush next to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need that shorter rod. So like, but yeah, anything in that eight and a half to 13, if you're running the center pin, like, yeah, it's money. Yeah. And you know, the action of the rod makes a big difference. So that's part of the equation. And then the other piece is uh, what kind of line are you using? Uh, what pound test and then your drag. So, you know, in, in a center pin situation, you're controlling a lot of that with your hand. Um, but with a spinning setup, <clears throat> you know, you're, 
you're adjusting that drag to get it dialed. And, and so if you have a shorter rod, you may want to back off on the drag because your rod's not absorbing so much of that, that run. And, and these fish are super explosive, right? So, so you're going to get these situations where they flip around, they take off on you. And that's where a lot of guys lose their fish. Um, it's because either their drag is set too tight, their line is just a little bit too light because their drag is too tight, um, or the action of their rod is just not exactly um, what they need to, to seal the deal. And it's a combination of those three things together. Um, if you have a super flexible rod, you're going to want your drag a little bit tighter because a super flexible rod mixed with low drag, you can end up losing tension on that fish on a quick head whip or something like that. And you, and you lose the fish that way. Um, so there's a fine line between being, um, too lenient with them and not lenient enough. Uh, and, and, and either way you're going to pay for it. And that's what I think that's, what's most attractive about steelhead in general is that there's just so many different times in a battle once they're hooked where you can lose them and uh and it's about finding that dialed uh presentation for yourself you you really have to know your equipment um if you don't know the gear that you have if somebody just hands you a rod and you're not used to fishing for steelhead it's going to take a long time to get that uh get used to that specific um setup if you're if you're a steelhead angler, it it helps a bit, but there's something special about having your own setup and knowing it because they will they will find your your weakness and they'll make you pay for it. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I remember the trip that was I think the first time I came up to Grand Rapids and stayed with Travis. We all went out, and I I want to say Travis farmed like three fish before mm-hmm. he landed one, and I think a lot of it is because. He wasn't used to fighting a steelhead. He wasn't used to that rod setup. He wasn't used to a whole lot of things. Um, and I think once he got it dialed, he was able to land those fish. And like the rod too, like it needs to be flimsy enough, or I guess flimsy enough. It needs to be light enough to be able to take the force of the fish, but not so light that the fish is controlling you. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, a uh, Okuma connoisseur, I think it was my first steelhead rod. And that's how it felt. Like when I caught a fish on it, it felt like the fish was controlling me. I could still land fish on it, but I didn't feel like I was in control. And then I went to a, like a St. Croix avid steelhead rod, paid a little more, more money. Now it can still take the fish, but now I feel like I'm in control. And I mm-hmm. think that's an important piece too, but you're only going to know that once you catch fish on it. Yeah, I feel. Yeah, absolutely. And and once you've messed around with several different rods, right? You wouldn't have known that had you started had you not started with the connoisseur. And the yeah. connoisseur is a, a rod that a lot of people start with, but um, and the Avid is a wonderful rod. I have a I have a Saint Croix as well, and I just prefer the action on a medium light Saint Croix rod. I, it's just something that I've loved in steelheading and in resident trout fishing. It doesn't matter the length. Um, I love st croix for for trout in general mm-hmm. and um and there is something special about being in control of that fish or as in control as much as you possibly can it can be. be yeah if if you're fishing in heavy current situations that's even more uh frustrating and challenging at times because you have to account for the fact that you've got you know potentially a 13 15 pound fish on the end of your line and they could be running down 
you know, a really incredibly strong current and then they turn broadside and now all of a sudden you've got a 30 pound fish on the line, essentially, you know, and, and you're and, fighting the current too. Yeah. And, and you're yeah. bending hooks out or snapping off quite quickly. And so a lot of the guys who um, do dam fishing in Michigan, I think they're used to that, uh, that bright presentation so that a fish can key in on it because they've got super turbulent water, a lot of times a ton of sediment in it. Um, and then they'll, they'll dial up their line a little bit and, or they'll just have a super forgiving rod. And so that when they set the hook, you know, they're, and you know, it's bent all the way over to the cork essentially, um, just so that they can not only prepare for that run from the fish, but they can also just let the current do its work. And 40 minutes later, the fish has essentially died and they're bringing it in, you know? Yeah, um, for sure. For sure. So I, I think we covered rods pretty well. Um, let's move down to the reel. What are you looking for in a reel? I'm looking for a good drag. I mean, if you, again, these, these fish will make you make a mistake if, if you don't have good gear, this is, this is a space in fishing, honestly, where I pay a little bit more, um, or I look for something more specific. I think that you can get away with cheaper tackle in a lot of other areas. And, and I'm not saying that cheap translates to garbage and expensive translates to high end, but there's something about having better performance gear with steelhead fishing. And, um, and so having good drag, um, is, is key. Uh, because again, even if there's that quick stutter, there's several different reels out there in the, in the spinning reel world where it almost takes a second for the drag to engage. And when that happens, you're, it's game over and you'll lose a lot of fish and you won't know why you're losing those fish. Um, so just getting a, getting a reel with a good drag. And again, just getting that really dialed so that, you know, the moment you start putting tension on that fish, you know, what that drag is going to act like and, and how that fish is going to move because you could be, you know, within a couple of inches of structure and you may need to gas it and, and pull that fish off those logs. Uh, or you may just as easily need to be able to give them some, uh, if they're taking a quick scream downstream and, and so you need it to be versatile in that way. And again, part of that plays in combination with your rod, but, uh, but a reel with a good drag is, is important. Yeah, completely agree. I think that was something that you hammered into me when I bought my first steelhead reel and I still have it. And it's the reel I use for steelhead and it's a fluter president. They're bulletproof. You can drop those things in the water. You can drop them in the sand, wash them off, and they're going to work. Um, and their drag is, I mean, I think their drag is really good, and especially for a, you know, a reel, it costs about 60 bucks, I think, now. I haven't bought one for 10 years, so I think it's about 60 bucks. <laughs> but, like, it's about, about a $60 reel, and, I mean, like, they last a super long time. They're heavy. They're not light, but, um, you know, that's not too bad, so... That would be my suggestion in a reel. Yeah. As long as they're balanced well on the rod too. Um, you don't want one that's so heavy that it's weird to carry around and your rods always kicking up and, and yeah. stuff like that. I mean, the balance is, is special. Um, so that's part of it, but yeah. Yeah. You definitely, uh, if you want to save weight, you're going to go up in price a little bit on spinning stuff for sure. So, all right. So we got, we got rod, somewhere in the eight and a half to 13 foot range, medium light, 
light somewhere in there. Good backbone can work the fish. You've got a reel, good drag, balance well with the rod. Um, now we get into the nitty gritty stuff. Line, bobbers, sinkers. I'm gonna call them a bobber because it's a bobber, <laughs> and, and I'm gonna piss off a lot of people, but it's a bobber. It is um, a bobber. Yeah, <laughs> <is a> <laughs> uh, you get into micro swivels, sinkers, hooks, jigs, flies, whatever you want to run. Um, let's kind of start at the line though. <clears throat> Line's pretty simple, right? Line is pretty simple, but it's also very important. There there are bodies of water where you can get away with monofilament, but it's never a bad idea to go fluoro. I actually run um, mainline mono for a little bit of flex, uh, and then I run fluoro leads. And, and again, part of that, it gives me a little bit of flex, but also if you ever nick fluoro, it's game over. If, if you even... Um, if there's any type of line abrasion whatsoever on fluoro, it's it's done. So if you get a fish on, it will it will snap. Um, monofilament is just a little bit less that way, so you can get away with some some of that. Even when you know if you're if you're tying a knot and you don't have your line properly lubricated, the the fluoro you can end up kind of kinking your line and making it really weird. It feels feels dry. And you can, you can actually get a, a weak spot right near that knot. So um, mono is more forgiving in that way. So that's, I run for a main line. Typically I'll run an eight pound test main. Um, and then I use a six pound fluoro lead. Uh, if, if I'm in an area where I need a little bit more um, strength, or if there's some murkiness to the water, I'll upgrade to an eight and, uh, and then I know that I've got my bases covered, but um, the key is to uh, make sure that that line isn't visible. And these fish have incredible eyesight. Uh, and a lot of times, especially early season, um, you have low water situations and it's clear. Now you get to a point where there's a good melt off or something and, and water's coming into the system or you get a good spring rain you get that murkiness and you could in, in theory and in certain situations, even get away with braid all the way down to your hook. It's a rare, rare occasion and I would never suggest it. Um, but, uh, but for the most part, you, you want to go as stealth as possible. And so fluorocarbon is your, your key there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I mean, my setup's going to be very similar to Matt's, but I run eight to 10 mainline to a, I run it to a micro swivel. Um, like you, you can buy just a standard smallest swivel you can buy, but they do sell like micro swivels that are specific for steelhead or heavy fish angling. Um, I like those because I, I figure the smaller, the smaller I can get it, the better that. And I also use them for ice fishing when I'm tying leaders for walleye and stuff like that mm-hmm. to a floral leader. Um, and uh, something you, you mentioned as far as the murkiness, I never understood quite how murky you wanted it until like I got to see it. And it's like that, um, like that hot tea color. It's not, it's not gin clear, but it's also not looking like a, you know, glass of diet Coke. It's like that, just like a nice tannin stain to the water. And that is enough to kind of make your line super invisible and make the bait stand out. Right. Yeah, I mean, each body of water is going to stain up a little bit differently, but 
and and so in any given scenario i would say my favorite time for for hooking into steelhead is basically the day after the body of water peaks if if you have flood stage right as it starts coming down as soon as there's any type of visibility and you'll notice it i mean again if you're if you're fairly dialed in in steelhead fishing there's a there's an on button and when you get them and the water's coming down you can really have high number days um it's also a time where you don't typically have as many people out yet uh because they're usually staying away from the flood uh, or any high water situation where you know the water's been blown out but that that stain is key because you there's just a little bit more forgiving um the fish are feeding they feel a little less threatened uh those low water situations uh, we may have discussed this before but trout you know naturally they're prey and uh and so even though these steelhead are massive they still have those same instincts to kind of duck and cover when the um when the water's clearer and when it's when it's murkier they're out and about and they're on the feed and so if they can see it uh you can have have high success in those moments so yeah for sure and like you're you're just and we're gonna have tangents throughout this a little bit but you were talking about like waters murk up differently they clear differently too mm-hmm. um i remember the first steelhead i caught we were fishing and it was pouring rain and you're like let's go over here because this 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 creek isn't going to murk up too, too fast. And and you were absolutely right. It hadn't yet. There was a two rivers that I fished in Ohio. One was, had a lot of farm runoff. So if it rained hard, it would be murky for days, unfishable for days, but a river 30 miles East, you could fish it two days later, mm-hmm. a day later. And it would be clear because it was just nothing but rock and shale bottom. Yeah. So like, know your rivers, know your waters, know, know that, know how they, you know, they murk up, how they clear. And that the only way you're going to know that is by taking the drive and realizing that that's chocolate milk. Can't do it yet. <laughs> so, I mean, incorporate your steelhead water into your morning drive or something. That way you can see what's going on, but that would be something that I would tell people. And it gives you options. I mean, it's nice because all of them act a little bit differently so, you know, they, one might be blown out, but it doesn't mean that the next one is, um, yep. and, and this time of the year, what's interesting is you'll have two different types of murkiness in each body of water. Um, you know, that runoff murk, it brings the water up and it carries a bit of sediment through the system. And usually it's more of a clear murk, you know, it's that really nice, uh, stain, if you get those hard rains on top of that melt off, then you get the total blowout. But on the back end of those, again, a lot of times that will um, cause those water levels to rise, those fish to push into the river systems and anything that's in those main systems start pushing up towards those spawning areas. And so um, <clears throat> a lot of these fish, uh, like the last couple of days, we've had really spring-like weather. And uh, so our rivers are at flood stage right now. And, and if you look at them, I mean, we didn't get incredible downpours. I don't know about you guys, but, um, you know, we had just a little bit of kind of mixy sleet and rain, um, over the last couple of days, nothing, nothing notable, not like an inch or anything like that, but we have seen a lot of runoff. Um, this would be the time to go down and check your local river or local Creek 
and uh, and just get an idea of what that looks like because it this is the time where a lot of fresh fish can start pushing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, all right, reverting back to the setup. You've got the line, you got the micro swivel, you got the leader. Um, you take that down to. Um, I, I run so for for a while. I, I tied painted and tied my own hair jigs. I ran your jigs when they were RBM jigs. Um, I still going to run your jigs as Lake effect jigs. It's like a just try. I mean, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like a six, uh, one and one sixteenth jig with a number six, two X mustad hook. Right. Yep. One sixteenth ounce for the two X mustad. Yep. Yeah. And that two X is, is important too. It is. Yeah. I mean, you get on anything less than that. And again, those current, those guys who are fighting fish in current get really ornery. Um, yeah. cause they'll bend those fish or bend those hooks right off. Um, and again, it does, it just gives you a little bit more when you're trying to turn a fish. Yeah, um, for sure. That size six hook, the, the importance of, and, and, and a lot of times you sacrifice strength, um, when you start going smaller, just naturally that the, the strength of the hook is a little bit lower. There are some exceptions, um, but it's a forged steel and it's a, it's a size six. Most of the one sixteenth, it's actually a tube jig. Um, and so it's, it's a crappie jig by design. Um, but, uh, most of the molds that have that one sixteenth ounce, uh, tube, uh, mold itself, um, take a size four hook. Now the, the gap on a size four hook is a little bit bigger and the length of the shank is quite a bit longer. And so you don't have a very tight presentation. Um, so if you're, if you're tipping those jigs with anything, you almost have the head of the jig and then a long shank gap, and then you've got whatever's, um, placed on there as bait. And so for us, when we modified those molds to take a size six hook, it tightened that presentation a bit and, uh, and it just brings those wax worms or spawn or plastics or whatever you're using, um, a little bit tighter in, and that presentation looks a little bit more, um, accurate. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, and, and you can run, um, like if you're running spawn, you can run, uh, an octopus hook. Um, mm -hmm. I like you know, any quality octopus hook. So Gamakatsu, uh, VMC Daiichi's really good. Daiichi's really good. Um, I mean, go to your local fly shop and be okay. like, I need number six, number eight octopus hooks, good quality. And they'll hook you up. Um, so you run that to your bait and you run waxies spawn bags and you kind of, that kind of depends on the time of year for you, right? Yeah. For me, I'm waxies from usually from, um, November all the way through, mid-March. It really depends on kind of when we see that warm-up coming in Michigan. Um, but my key for when to switch to, to spawn is when I see a lot of fish up on beds. Um, I'll still bring waxworms. Um, and now we're using plastics as well. Um, but, uh, but anything that, um, like a waxworm, I use all through the winter. Really nice, simple, uh, presentation, but they're, they're feeding on bugs. And then when a lot of fish start dropping eggs, you have other fish in the system trying to bust those eggs up. And, uh, 
And so naturally it works a lot better to, to switch over to spawn at that time. So usually, usually early April, um, or, or late March. Yeah, for sure. And that's something that you kind of taught me too along the way is like, no, nah, it's too cold for too cold for spawn. Like they're not really dropping anything yet. So it doesn't make any sense for that to be here. And something else I learned, um, that same weekend that, uh, Travis farmed all those fish, the size of small spawn bag apparently matters. Um, I showed up, we laid a Mason jar full of spawn bags and you looked at them and you're like, holy shit, dude. Pillows. Pillows, giant <laughs> spawn bags. I mean, these things were the size of quarters. And, uh, he's like, yeah, those need to be like the size of dimes. And I was like, okay, we'll retie it at night. <laughs> but I mean, we ended up catching a couple fish, but once we made it smaller and more realistic, it made a huge difference, but yeah, you were like, uh, I have some. <laughs> yeah. When you're king fishing and stuff, oh man, slam a huge piece of skein on there. But for, for steelhead, the tighter that spawn sack is, the smaller it is. And it, actually it's really nice because if you get a fresh skein in the spring, as long as you, um, prepare it, prepare it appropriately. I mean, you can, you can tie hundreds of bags off of, uh, a skein. So that's really nice. You're not gobbling up a bunch for one spawn sack, but it does make a big difference. I actually prefer to, um, if I'm catching tight hens, I prefer to take that membrane and keep it in there. Um, and, and I think there's just a little bit more of that scent, whereas loose eggs, you know, after they've been in the water for a couple rounds, um, that smell, uh, comes off of them a bit more. And yeah. so I just really like having that actual membrane in there too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So we've got rod reel line leader hook, um, bobbers. I, I mean, I like an inline bobber, like you use a little surgical tubing to attach it. Drennan makes good floats. Raven makes good floats. Um, I'm trying to, I'm stuck on others. You can go, I mean, you can go even like Carlisle or yeah, Carlisle. Eagle Claw. like they've, they've all got their own version of it now. And and honestly, I don't, it's whatever I don't think, works for you. Yeah. I don't think the brand necessarily matters, but matching the bobber size to your bait and sinker and the flow of the water, that is important. But, you know, Certainly. I think anything in that, like five gram bobber mm -hmm. size is going to be perfectly fine for just about any Western Michigan river. Um, unless you're up on the Manistee never fished that. So I wouldn't have a clue. Similar there. I mean, it, it, and again, it just depends how you weight it, you know, in heavy current situations, a lot of guys are, um, sending five or six split shot down beneath the, the float. And in that case, you're running eight to 12 gram. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yep. but, but if, if in the case you're running jigs, like you and I mostly do, yeah, split shot is important, but you know, the split shot is there to slow your rig down, to give it more time in the, in the strike zone, so to speak, but your jig is doing all the work getting down at the bottom. That's what I love about a jig for, um, float fishing. I mean, it's so simple because the place you're getting bit is the place that's weighted. So it's not like you've got a split shot and then just some spawn sack dangling three feet behind and which could be way back in the current, right? Fish, a fish hits that way later. And you've kind of got this weird situation where that float goes down, it's coming down sideways, your hook sets kind of goofy. You know, the nice thing about uh, a jig and a float, and if you can even if, if you need little split shot, um, at all, you still get that nice vertical presentation all the way down to the bait. 
And, and so when that bite happens, that flow drops, you know, and it drops vertically and, and then you've got a nice, good, clean hook set into the roof of their mouth. Yeah, for sure. That's a, I hadn't ever thought about it like that. Um, but that makes a great point because I mean, we've seen bobbers drop and you set the hook and you know, it's a fish, but if you don't get a strong hook set under that fish's mouth, then you're going to lose it and wonder what happened. And then you might've just, I mean, I don't think you'll ruin the hole necessarily unless it's a gin clear day, but it ain't going to be right either. Yeah. And it may only be, they may only give you one chance. You know, sometimes you can, you can send it down a pass, you know, seven, eight times in a row and all of a sudden, you know, your ninth time down, boom, you get one quick bobber down and you know, you weren't bumping bottom. You, you know, you weren't on structure and they never touch it again and you miss that opportunity. And so it's, it's about capitalizing on the few opportunities you make it during the day, or maybe even only one opportunity. Um, so anything that you can do to kind of <clears throat> kick out any potential for, uh, for not getting the opportunity to hook them, you know, you just do that and you've got to be, you got to be consistent with that. You know, it, it's, it's not, um, a type of fish you want to get lazy on. Uh, if you're, if you're feeling like, uh, man, I just don't feel like retying and switching colors or, oh, I don't really feel like doing it. Like that's, you might as well not go fishing for steelhead because Absolutely. there's a, there's a chance it can happen, but, um, there's also a better chance that that laziness just will cause you to have a poor day on the water. Well, and, and, you know, you, you said that, you know, you can't be lazy with this fish. You can't be lazy with your hook sets mm-hmm. in order. To, and this is going to sound weird in order to catch a steelhead, you have to be willing to rip your rig off of the water into the maple tree above your head. <laughs> like you have to you be will. able to, and you will do that regardless of whether you're trying to or not. But like when that bobber drops, you need to bury that hook. I mean, mm-hmm. I still remember fishing a little mini run. Um, and you know, the bobber went down slowly and I just kind of like, just like, uh, is that a, Oh, that's a fish. And it hopped off immediately because I did not set the hook with any kind of conviction. Like you've got to be willing to ruin your stuff and cuss for 15 minutes as you untangle everything. (laughs) Like it's just part of the game, unfortunately. And they hang tight to structure. So don't ever assume that that I mean, if you've, if you've casted 20 times in the same hole and you've hit the same spot every single time and you set that hook keep setting a hook because there's a chance that that's going to be a fish and it probably will be the spot where that fish is at. And, and what you'll end up doing is you'll, you'll get in this mindset. Oh, that's just that stick. Oh, that's just that rock. Oh, I'm just bumping that. And then before you know it, you're kind of doing that little, like, like you're talking about that feeler tug where you're like, well, yeah, whatever. And you pull and all of a sudden your bobber goes and you see a flash and the fish is gone, you know? And so, so it is, it's, um, be, be aggressive with your hook set. And just if, if you think it might be, and even if you don't think it might be, if you're seeing some activity on that float, it's, it's better to set the hook than it is to let it pass. Yeah. There, there's a reason why I've got, you know, 60 jigs in my box Yeah, because, well, you're probably going to lose a dozen yep. or a half dozen. Once you know your holes, you won't lose that many, but when you're starting to learn stuff, you're going to lose a few hooks for sure. 
So, and if you're not losing hooks and you don't know the water, then you're not fishing it right. Correct. You want, you really want to be hugging the bottom and, and you want to be hitting the front and the back of those holes in a really intense way. So you've got that belly in the center of the hole. A lot of your fish that aren't feeding are going to be hanging down there for that current break. Current's passing over top, your front and back have a little bit more current. Usually your tail out has less. I actually see a higher success rate in the tail outs um, of, of holes and runs. But um, but that's where they're they're actively feeding because that's where the food is passing by down in the down in the center of that hole. You can still catch fish there, um, but but usually it's more of a force feeding event or in a situation where you know you've got high sky and those fish are under a ton of pressure and they're pushed down in the center of that hole. Um, you know then then you can have a little bit better success there. But generally speaking, fronts and backs of holes, lower third of the water column makes a huge difference. Yeah, definitely. Um... Here's a segue for you. Uh, well, first, Cody, you haven't said much. You're kind of taking it all in. Do you have any questions before we float on in Ugh. to where the fish are? <laughs> I'm proud of that one. I'm proud yeah. of that one. <laughs> that was nice. No, I'm, uh, like I said, I'm just kind of taking it all in. I guess, um, you know, maybe before we get out of the gear stuff, uh, kind of coming from a selfish place, I guess, but walk me through like a, a good beginner setup, you know, maybe something kind of that like happy medium or something you'd recommend. Um, you know, like for myself, like I mentioned kind of before we get on here, uh, I've dabbled in steelhead a little bit, but it's always been with my fly rod. Um, and I'm, you know, personally kind of looking to get into more of the conventional game too. Um, now living in West Michigan, I'm kind of like, I've always been interested in steelhead, but it's like right in my back door. So now it's like, I really need to, you know, start trying to, to figure this out. So, so beginner setup again, I think, uh, the spinning, spinning rig is a nice beginner setup. So I would just go with, um, you know, a, a reel that's budget friendly, but has good, you know, good quality, uh, gears in it and is going to be, you know, a high performance reel. Um, the, the rod I'd go, you know, depending on, are you, are you planning to fish, small creeks primarily or or main river or he'll he'll fish um some of the spots that you've told me about matt okay so similar stuff but i think i mean i think it tends to be without like saying like river and creek names like matt knows what i'm talking about (laughs) a ten and a half foot rod i wouldn't go bigger than that um and again it's a medium i wouldn't go heavier than a medium um action rod light action is uh is fine Medium light is again my preference because um, you get a little bit of that backbone, but still that soft tip for for them to run. Um, I'd go probably like Seaguar eight pound, um, but you can also just go you know or or six for for the lead, um, and you can use something really cheap for your mono. I mean Berkeley Big Game is like it's like a dollar for a million yards or something <laughs> like that, and it's actually it's, like- it's actually. It's like a 600 yard spool too. You'll never, ever run out of it. It's the only line you'll ever find at Walmart, except it's only like 30, 40 and 50 pound tests or something weird like that. Okay. Um, uh, but no, I mean, mono, you can pretty much go with anything. And, and then I would go just with, a, you know, on your floats, Aaron made a good point. Inline floats are key. Um, you really, 
you start hitting the drag of the float if uh, or the bobber uh, if if it's not in line. Um, when you go to set that hook, it can flop around and drag, and and it's just kind of sloppy. Those inline floats um, help that hook set be be nice and clean. Um, a lot of them are making them with a clear bottom. Um, that's nice, clear or black. Uh, anything that's not super bright, I've noticed. Uh, if you're using, I know a couple gentlemen that use slip floats, um, not my preference, but mm. a lot of slip floats are, uh, white bottomed, um, not, not something I would recommend. And I don't know, uh, cause black doesn't necessarily, you know, lend me to think that it's anything, uh, that's not visible, but I think maybe black is a more natural color. You've got you know, logs that float overhead and leaves, um, leaves and things like yeah, that. Sure. And, and so it's consistent with those colors, whereas white um, might just be a little bit off and that's what's spooking them. So I'd say, say dodge that. Um, and then just, you know, a variety of different jigs. And if you're heading on down, take a pack of waxies um, and, uh, and give it a shot that way. That to me is kind of the, the simple, starter version of steelhead fishing yeah and cool to kind of kind of piggyback off of what matt said like if you wanted specifics like if i if someone said i want a you know i'm going out for steelhead give me a couple options i'd send you right to the fluter president reel if you wanted to spend a little bit more get a shimano there would be a little bit lighter um or rod you can go the akuma kind of sewer or you can go up and get uh what matt runs and that's the saint croix triumph um they're like mm-hmm. 110 bucks so they're not they're not going to be the most expensive steelhead rod by far i recently found mm-hmm. out how much a custom steelhead rod costs not because i'm oh, yeah. buying one because i was curious and you know <laughs> if i'm going to spend that much money i'm going to buy a shotgun um but if you if, you if, shoot if the fish? <laughs> I would shoot the fish, you're damn right. I would shoot the fish. <laughs> no, but I mean, if, if, if you know, and you know what Matt said with the line, oh, that's good. Cedar, uh, I run Cedar. FC Sniper is really good too. Um, yeah, color wise for jigs, natural. I like natural. Um, maybe a little bit of a bright speck of color in there. Um, Matt, you have a color that. Uh, kiwi god you've railed so mm-hmm. many fish on that on that color and it it's like a the color of a kiwi it's got that natural but it's got a little bit of a perky brightness to it to kind of get their interest too so like that's kind of what i would suggest yeah um i go neutral i'm i'm the same way with any uh species that i'm targeting at any time of the year, if I can go neutral or quote unquote match the hatch in any fashion, I'm going to do that first. And then I go vibrant. Um, if, uh, you know, if the Merc is dark, if it's super dark stain, I might throw chartreuse or something like that on. Um, but otherwise, as soon as those fish can see, if I can see down three feet, you know, with, with polarized glasses on, if I can see anything three feet, um, even if it's just the sand on the bottom, uh, I'm, I'm reverting to those natural colors, maybe just with like a white eye or something on them. Um, and, uh, and I've found success in that very consistently for all species of fish. So, um, 
just like Aaron's talking, I, I love that uh, that deep green, Parsh, partially because it's almost got a browny greeny. It's a it's a weird green, um, and uh, with some black spots, and and so it's it's simple. It's a similar color to a lot of what your nymphs are going to be, um, you know, or at least has some resemblance there. And then um, I also go with like a, anything that's black with maybe a, a little accent of color. Black cherry was was a color. We actually just redid it. Now it's ladybug. Um, but uh, we have, you know, we have several different options that we produce um, as a business. And but, but they kind of hit both of those uh, areas. There's some of those darkers and then a lot of those real bright ones, too. So, yeah, cool. It's it's gives me a good. Uh... Good starting point. So that's what I'm looking for. I guess I do have one other question before we move on. Um, going back to the depth thing, is there like a rule of thumb or is there kind of like a um, like an initial way that you're kind of gauging where your setup needs to be? I mean, I assume a lot of it gets to be feel, but is there kind of like a uh, something you use to kind of get to that starting place? Yeah, so... Um... I'm typically fishing a hole, right? So I'm working a bend or maybe there's a, a log in the river that's uh, created a, a nice cut and a run. Um, what I what I do typically to start is I make sure I find bottom. And so if I'm, if I'm dragging bottom, my float's going to be sideways and you'll see it. And then, of course, it'll be dipping and stuff. Uh, yeah, as soon as hop, you can right? get that, it will. Yeah, yeah. And as soon as you can get that float to go vertical and you're still bumping a little bit, um, it, if you're bumping one time, that's perfect. Um, if you're bumping a couple times, that's great too. Um, but, but you want to be almost on the bottom or at least bumping the bottom somewhere in that run. Now it, it, in any hole, you can find structure that's, you know, significantly higher than the rest of the hole. And so you can dissect that hole, um, in several different ways. For instance, if you had, <clears throat> You might have an eight foot stretch in the front that's, you know, four to five feet deep. And then all of a sudden you've got 20 feet in the center that's six or seven feet deep. And then you've got, again, maybe a 20 foot stretch in the tail out that's four to five feet deep again. If you put it at that four and a half foot mark, you might be really hitting good on the front and back of that hole, which is great. But in the center, on the off chance that the fish are down in there and they're feeding, you you might want to you know, start your, start your cast, you know, a third of the way into that hole and extend that leader and, and get yourself dialed into that center of that hole, if that makes sense. So that, so that you're almost ticking bottom there, because you're going to be passing over the heads of those fish, you know, with your original presentation. So what I like to do is just kind of look at each hole as uh, several individual holes and, and see, can I, can I set this at a single depth and consistently pass this, um, this whole, um, without having to adjust, or do I need to think of it in a little bit different way? So I think this is, a, again, you did a really good job of transitioning without, you know, having to transition. So we're, you're, you're talking about a hole that you're going to fish. And like you said, a hole can be varying sizes. I mean, we've seen holes that we've fished that are, you know, the size of the desk that I'm sitting at six feet long. Mm -hmm. We've also seen holes that are more like runs, but they have a front, they have a back and they're 30 yards long. Mm -hmm. Um, when you come to a hole, 
it's a noticeable hole. Um, how one, how do you spot that hole? And two, how do you approach it and say, I'm going to fish it like this? Well, so, I mean, most of the time when I'm going out and I'm thinking about steelheading in general, I'm looking for an area that is going to be in close proximity to spawning ground. Um, in the winter, you get a little bit more, um, you get a little bit more focused on those low current areas. And so you don't necessarily have to get near gravel. Um, but when I'm, when I'm walking up, I guess if, if I were to say spotting a specific hole, obviously there's that definitive look to a hole. It's either on a, a harsh bend, um, or, or you can see the depth just by the, the way that it looks. Um, and so, you know, I'll approach it from, I'm always walking upstream just as I do with any type of, uh, trout fishing. You know, if I'm, if I'm coming downstream, I'll skirt way around, uh, on, on the land because those fish are all facing upstream and you don't want to spook them. Um, and, uh, and I'll approach it from the back and I'll, I'll just start giving it a quick look, see if there's any structure down in the hole that needs to be noted. Um, and then, and then I'm typically casting close to any structure that is uh, that is in the hole or bordering the hole, um, and just trying to dissect it in a way where I can find a nice lengthy run. Uh, my goal is to have the most time in the water as I possibly can on any given hole, um, and and to have it in that strike zone as as long as possible. So uh, I guess if that generally describes anything. I don't know if that, if that helps at all. So kind of go a little bit further. How do you recognize a hole? Well, like the, the construct of a hole is typically, um, determined by, you know, usually on your, on your up, your upper side, you've got something that's causing a hole, uh, whether again, it be this, this curve in the, the river or some type of rock structure that kind of hollows out, uh, the, the earth behind it. Um, and so when I'm walking up through any river system, I'm just looking for, for something that's a little bit darker, you know, in, in color that I can, that I can target. So is that, is that hitting the heart of the question? Reading the water. Say you've got a spot. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it looks dark and everything. How do you pick out where the depth of the water is? Like where the mm. depth of the hole is in relation to the current that you're looking at from the top of the water. Okay. So you're not asking specifically about how to find a hole per se. You're talking about how do I, well, I mean, your answer was great, but I was going to say that was helpful. No, no, that's super helpful. <laughs> but if you can't read water, can you find a steelhead hole? Sure. So, um, well, yeah, I mean, just fish all the holes and you'll find one potentially. <laughs> um, that's fair. But probably the best way to find the, the deepest spot of the hole, I mean, you're going to have a heavier run of current um, through the deepest area of the hole, generally speaking. Um, so if you've got uh, if you've got a nice, uh, let's just say you've got a giant tree that's sticking out into the river um, and you've got all of the current pushed over to one side, you're going to see it trenched out along the side where that, that uh, water is running through. Um, just off to the side of that, you're going to have 
more of a slack water and a seam in between that slack water and that heavy current. Um, and so I'm fishing off just off the side of that heavy current. Um, but your, I mean, your deepest part isn't always going to be your, your center of focus per se. Um, but if you can skirt that deepest part, um, and find where that, those current breaks are, uh, because there's a, there's a fine balance between being too much current. I mean, a lot of those fish aren't purposely sitting in the heaviest current, uh, that they can, it just doesn't make any sense unless that's the only place they're finding, um, food. And in, in those scenarios, you can, you can catch fish, um, in heavy current, but if they have an opportunity to just bump off the side there, um, that's where a lot of your fish are going to come. Um, so looking for, you know, bubble, if, if you're just looking at surface, the bubble trails, um, if, if you've got one of those, you can follow those bubble trails. And then a lot of times at the end of a bubble trail, you'll kind of see that current slow down and that water fan out a bit. And that's that tail out section that I was talking about. A lot of times you're going to lose a little bit of depth there, but that's really where uh, a high concentration of fish can be sitting. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. I, yeah. That's, uh, that's kind of what I was hitting. I forgot about the bubble trail. I don't know how I yeah, that, about it, but yeah, that bubble trail is, uh, I mean, if you run your bobber right down that bubble trail enough times, you're probably gonna run into a fish. Yeah. Yeah. And just off the side of that, I mean, again, we're looking for those seams, um, a seam being, you know, a place where you can see a considerable change in the current and some, some holes will have 10 and 15 seams in them, depending on what's causing the current, um, depending on what created the hole, you know, you get in those really slow kind of roundabout corners and things, you're probably not going to see nearly as much of that kind of um, separation of uh, current and, and center runs and, you know, kind of runs off to the side. But in any situation, be looking for higher current areas, lower current areas, uh, something that might obstruct the current. You know, if you've got uh, a really rocky river um, and you have big boulders there that might be cutting the current, if you can drag, you know, if you can be running your float and then drag that uh, bait right over the top of a boulder, those fish are going to be sitting right behind that in that current break. Um, and so just focusing on areas uh, of interest, which would be the hole, and then, and then looking off to the side of those where those fish might just be relaxing a little bit. Gotcha. Okay. That, was that, uh, pretty clear, Cody? Yeah, that's good. I'm thinking about a few holes that I fished last year that I probably wasn't fishing as well as I should have been. So I got things to work on. <laughs> <laughs> good deal. Nice. Um, okay. So you find the, you find a prospective hole, um, and you want to start fishing it. Do you break it down as far as I'm going to fish the front, then the back, then the center? Or do you just float all the way through? I mean, you kind of touched on this already. I'm kind of baiting you a little bit with the question, but you go ahead and kind of take it. Yes. I almost always start with like a full length cast. I'll, I'll stand, you know, three quarters of the way back on the hole. Um, and I'll go for a cast towards the nose and I'll just see how that first run goes. Um, again, that's your, your, if, if I know nothing about that hole, um, I've never been there before. Uh, most of the time that first cast is really a test to say, okay, am I going to snap off on something that I can't see here? Um, what's the depth of the hole? Um, you know, are there any active fish that I can just pick up right, you know, right now, very rarely are you going to be steelhead fishing, not know the hole, walk up and catch a fish on the first cast only because knowing the hole is key to, 
uh, really doing super well consistently. And unlike like bluegill fishing or whatever, these steelhead, they'll shift for bait, um, but they're not going to come chart. Like they don't see it way ahead in the, in the current and come charging up and, and grab it, especially for a float presentation. Now, if you're, if you're dragging a spinner through the hole and you get them fired up and stuff like that, then there, there's a chance that they can, they'll chase you, but a lot of times they'll follow it back as opposed to aggressively moving forward towards it. So the better you can know the hole, the higher likelihood that you have of actually getting a chance to catch that fish or, or, um, find the spot where they're kind of hunkered down. Um, and almost always that spot will be consistent, uh, for, for fish in the future. It's not like one fish, um, typically drops in on a spot. If, if, if a fish finds a spot, that spot will typically be good in that hole until something with that hole changes. Yeah. That sounds, I mean, I'm, I'm doing a lot of reminiscing with this, with this, uh, conversation because like, I'm thinking back to like, whenever we would come up to a new hole, like, let's check this out. Like the first thing you would do is you just cast and see is like, okay, well that's shallow right there. You kind of learn the hole in a couple casts and mm-hmm. then you can really dial it in from there. Yeah. And as long as you're not casting on top of the fish constantly, I mean, if you, especially if you give them a little lead in and stuff, you're not going to spook them at all. They see stuff drifting past them all day long. Um, especially if you've got sediment in the waterway, we had a, um, we had a hole, probably the first hole that I actually learned on um, there. I didn't know what it was in the front of the hole, but every time you went to this hole, you would catch a fish on the first cast. Now it was, it was once I learned the hole, um, it was shallow up there. I couldn't figure out why, but it, if I had it at about three and a half feet, I would just on the first cast, boom, bobber down fish. And it was just so nice. It was actually a spoiler. Um, but what I found is in the summertime, and this is a great thing to do, um, go back to that body of water and see what it is, see the points of interest, because during low water, low, clear water of summer, um, you can find the spots that are causing these fish to sit where they're sitting. And if you don't know a hole, um, you can say, oh, okay, that's there. That's there. Okay. Next year when you know, when those fish are in or later this year, when those fish are in, I'm going to focus on trying to get into that area. Lo and behold, there was just a tiny little, um, cinder block and it was sitting right in the front of that hole. And it, it didn't even really even carve out the sand behind it, but just that little bit of, uh, cement that was sitting right there caused just enough of a current break that every morning there was a fish sitting behind it. And, uh, and so it was neat because that was a learning experience for me. I was like, oh, there's a lot of stone in the back of this hole I didn't know about. Um, and, you know, it just gives you an opportunity to kind of look at structure. And so that's something I always recommend to people. Yeah, I remember you uh, telling me, like, how you found holes. Like, yeah, that's a big reason why I trout fish. <laughs> it's because, mm-hmm. like, I'm able to go scout in the summer and figure out where these fish are. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned that hole kind of a a one-off you, uh, it spoiled you. There's always a fish there on the first cast real quick. How many times are you going to cast into the same hole? Cause this is something that it took me a couple times. I think, I think the first time I went with you, like I did like two or three casts and you're like, what are you, what are you doing? And I was like, there's nothing there. Yeah. And I bet we fished it's... that hole for like 40 minutes. So when I'm trout fishing, I'll do like two class, two casts. 
because uh, I'm looking for a reaction strike with float fishing and honestly steelhead fishing in general. Um, I can spend half an hour, hour at a single hole, no problem. Um, but it just depends if there's a lot of anglers around and you're afraid of losing a spot or something, you might sit on that hole most of the day. If you know, fish are there. Um, the important thing is don't assume that there's not fish there. I've had days where it is almost perfectly clear. I can see the bottom of the hole and I think I can see absolutely everything. And then I will snag up on something and I'll be like, I can see my bait down there. I'll go to unhook it because I'm just saying, you know what, I'm done with this hole. And I will spook a fish that was sitting there the entire time that I couldn't see. And um, so don't quickly move off of holes. Um, Be willing to sit there and change uh, baits, change presentations, change depths. This is one of the spaces where, I'll be honest, I'm like most anglers in most areas of fishing, um, where... I have my favorite bait. I have my favorite color. I I still have that in steelhead fishing, but more often in steelhead fishing, I change my jig color. Um, I change my depth. I'm always fiddling with it because the subtleties are so much more important in steelhead fishing. And, and it doesn't even have to make sense. You know, it might be, um, bright pink with dark purple, um, jig and, and you might catch five fish and, you may have tried 50 different color patterns prior to that and not had a fish, you know, go off. Was it the time of day? Was it the sun hitting the hole all of a sudden? Was it the water temperature? Um, because the sun hit the hole, like there, there are so many different changes um, that can be the difference between a boom and a bust. And, and again, when you're, when you're only going out and catching maybe one fish or three fish, or, you know, if you're really fortunate, five or seven fish in a day, um, it's really, really, really important to not quit. There, there's lazy, lazy, lazy will never pay in steelhead fishing. So just don't be afraid to mix it up and, and be persistent with, you know, not ruling out the the hole that you're in. Yeah, I think I think the way that uh, the way that you kind of put it to me is like like I don't leave a hole. Like if other variables, you know aside, like if this super busy and you want to kind of stay there or whatever, like if you're alone, don't leave until you know for a fact that you have fished that hole well mm-hmm. with, and then that means, like you said, changing baits, changing color, um, changing size, where you're casting, working the front, the back, the center, the sides, depths, etc. Once you've gotten to the point where it's like, I have fished the hell out of this hole. All right. Well, maybe now might be time to mosey on up somewhere else. Yeah. And if that's the case, look for a hole that has something totally different. If you're working, if you're working a slow hole, um, on a corner, look for a center run somewhere, or, or if you're working something that's a little shallower, look for something that's deeper. Um, because again, that's a different variable, uh, that, that might give you the opportunity because it might be that hole specifically, um, that's just causing you to not get in on the fish. I remember when we fished the one time, um, there was a hole that had been developing for about a year and a half and it was a really slowly developing hole, but it was, it was shallow. And, um, I remember we, we started on one hole and we had a mild 
like amount of success at best. I think we maybe hooked a fish. Maybe we didn't even at this point. Um, and, uh, and I said, you know what, let's go upstream. There's, there's, uh, there's a hole up there that's been kind of developing. We got up there and we could see the fish moving back and forth. Do you remember this? Yes, we pulled. Yes, because that, that was the day that we, that was probably the best day of steelhead fishing that I'd been a part of. There were, there was five of us, um, everyone but Corey caught fish. Corey also, Corey also caught a, he caught a steelhead on his second ever cast on a, I think it was a Friday night or a Saturday, a Thursday night or something like that. And he's like, if I don't catch one the rest of the weekend, I'm, I'm happy that he didn't catch one the rest of the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> he deserved to have a, yeah, no uh, shit. But like, day after second, second but I, I do remember that spot. You're like, let's go up here. There's, there's another spot and we could see the fish from, uh, from a ways off. Um, I, man, I bet we pulled three, four fish out of that hole. Yeah. And we even, I'm pretty sure we caught it, like had a double too. Yes. Um, yep. Eric and Travis, Eric caught one on that ugly ass maize and blue, uh, jig that I tied him. And I was like, you're not catching anything with this. And sure enough. And he did. Yeah, he did. <laughs> the, the important thing about that day was we had water coming down. It was murky prior. And if I'm not mistaken, we, we had fished a hole, not done well in it. We went up to this hole, which was shallower. We could see fish in it. We fished it, did well. Sun came up, got a little more clarity on that first hole, came back. And I think we caught some fish in that corner hole too, if I'm not mistaken. The one we had already fished, which was deeper. Yeah. Yeah. I know where you're talking about. Yeah, we did. We did pull a couple of fish out of there. So I, you know, and, and again, time of day. Water temperature, was it just that added bit of uh, sun, you know, penetrating the hole? Or maybe maybe it was just that that sediment had just settled down enough in, um, you know, in its movement in the water that, that, that the clarity increased a little bit. But again, so many different things working in steelhead fishing. And so, you know, keep thinking, keep um, changing and, you know, reassessing stuff. And always note, w- when you hook a fish, it's really easy to get excited and, you know, experience the whole catch and and that's good. But right after that catch, note what you were using when you, you know, when you hook that fish, what, what are the conditions? Um, and you know, temperatures specifically too, and, and you can start developing patterns, uh, which will, which will increase your success. Even where at in the hole, like where, where, where in that hole did my bobber go down? Mm -hmm. You know, that can be, it's all information for the next time. Yeah, that might be the hot spot forever in that hole. You may never ever find another spot where a fish sits in that hole, but it might also be the spot like the one that I was talking about where every single time you go there, there's a fish there and it's a quick hit. Um, and so that's where I think you you start building this arsenal of holes you're familiar with, rivers you're familiar with that have successful holes. And you can spot check these areas pretty quickly um, especially if they're in close proximity to one another, but it'll start to, you'll start to construct an idea of the movement of fish in these systems and just kind of their natural positioning, um, especially throughout the season. And that will change, um, again, as they're staging and, and they're getting ready to get up on beds. Um, and then once they get on beds, I, I just try to leave them alone a bit, um, I remember when I first started steelhead fishing, I was all about it. I'm like, I can see them. I want to fish them. If it's 
if it's close to a bed um, and if there's a hole near a bed that's active, that's a really good place to focus. Um, or if you see a fresh bed and there's no fish on it, um, that hole that's closest to that bed is most likely going to be the one where there's probably a hen and a buck, if not several. Okay. So we've covered, we've covered setups. We've covered how to find holes. We've covered how to kind of go about fishing a hole. I kind of want you, because it's not just about the bubble trail lines of, of holes and stuff like that. Their steelhead can hide in many places. Can you start like rattle off a few places that you'll notice and, and you'll say um, like, I want to run my, I want to run my bobber through that. It's et cetera. If there's an area that you can access that has like overhanging alders, um, or any type of like brush that's hanging over the water, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be touching the water, but if it's touching the water, that's even better. If you can run your float around along the um, edge of that, um, again, any cross logs where there's an undercut, uh, super important. I mean, run it all the way up to that log if you can. Again, if it's if it's running across, you're going to get you're, you start to flirt with danger a bit there. But um, that six inch range between where that log is under the water and where your floats at, that can be the difference between catching a fish and not um, submerged uh, boulders like I was talking about. Um, if there's any type of like uh, broken down stone like old dams uh, those are really good um like railroad ties any anything that's um man has chucked in the river uh wheelbarrows tires i mean honestly tires i've i've caught a lot of fish behind tires um i remember a spot you sent me to there was a tire like it was just sitting half out of the water (laughs) you're like you'll see a tire it's like really a tire (laughs) <laughs> it's it's a frustrating thing to see but also it can be it can be a good thing not that i'm saying that i enjoy seeing the <laughs> tire isn't it be a, a tire a tire epidemic in in western michigan it's like i'm yeah. building steelhead water don't mind me there we go uh there's a lot better things to build structure with but um downsides of bridges um bridges naturally pinch the water and so you're going to get a big washout um you know, so hit the back end of, of bridges there. Um, yeah, I'd say, I mean, that's, that's the majority of the recommendations for basically anything that, uh, they could hold or hide behind, uh, or under, um, they're probably going to be there. The, the kicker is do steelhead go into the stream that you're fishing. I think that's an important one to, to learn. Um, cold, Rivers and streams that have an origin of cold water uh, are going to be primarily the ones that fish move into. Now, there has to be at least a certain amount of depth. And I would say if if you're fishing a stream that doesn't get to three feet, you're not going to have holdover fish. And you're very, very unlikely to get fish that are spawning for more than a couple of days. So you're either going to be sitting there whacking them off of beds in a tiny creek, which I just don't. I don't see the pleasure in that so much. Um, or, or you're fishing a little bit more substantial body of water. So this is not like your midsummer trout stream where you can be fishing two feet wide, tiny creeks that are six inches deep. Um, so 
but but the origin being a cold water tributary is important partly because that has to do with whether or not these fish can stay in the system and usually steelhead actually what they'll do is they'll they'll spawn they'll, they'll drop the eggs those fry that are actually um the uh, product of this first year spawn a lot of them will stay in that system some of them will back out into the lake after the first year but then they won't return until year three or four when they've grown up quite a bit. But it's important because in order to be able to host trout, especially in those marginal um, water temperature months, you really want something that's got good cold water input. So um, it doesn't, doesn't have to be the case, but the majority of the waterways that I see high success on are also resident trout streams. And, and that's just because they tend to carry that colder water. The, the other thing that can happen um, is these fish can come into spawn. That water can warm up really fast, especially in situations where, let's say you have 60 or 70 degree days. You have farmland that you're talking about with a ton of runoff. This water can warm up really quickly. And although they deposit those uh, eggs into rocks, the oxygen is brushing over them very quickly in, in high current situations, which is why a lot of times they'll also spawn in very shallow water. It pushes that water across faster and brings the oxygen to those eggs that much quicker. Um, but but if you get too rapid of a warm up, it will actually kill all those eggs. And so that there will not be a successful spawning season for those, those fish. So they tend to pattern back towards the water that they were born in. And most often the water that they're born in is water that they're planted. Um, or water where there are naturally um, other steelhead spawning, and those are typically waterways that are cold water tributaries. Yeah, and jumping off of that too, don't something. So the first steelhead I ever caught, um, I did the little map along the river to see how many miles of river that it went. And in the first fish I caught, it wasn't it wasn't a dime, it wasn't a shiny dime. She had some little rose, little little pinky cheek to her. Pink cheeks. Yeah, but I think it was something like twenty-seven miles inland of of mm-hmm. of creek water, and that blew my mind. That like we're that far in, and I and people catch fish. If you look at the state of Michigan, you cut it in half. People have caught steelhead on that center line of the state of Michigan. They can go right. a long ways. You don't have to go all the way to, you know next to Lake Michigan or Lake Huron or Superior or wherever you're fishing to catch fish, they'll go a long ways. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a good population of people who target steelhead and Lansing. Um, and you're a lot of miles away. I mean, as the crow flies, you're probably, I don't know. It's an hour and a half drive. hundred miles. So, you know, and then you've got the winding of the, the river um, itself. So I can only imagine, you know, that that's probably 150 miles of river. Um, but I do remember, and they move quickly, um, especially if they've got good river conditions. Um, in, in the summer, when we would get a good water flip out at the mouth of the Grand River at Grand Haven, um, so we'd get a hard north wind, that water would go from 80 degrees to like 55, and all of a sudden the Scamania would run really hard. They would try, they do run into the, the Grand and there's a couple of tributaries that they go to, um, but they would make that push and that that water flip would happen. And three days later, they were up at 6th Street Dam in, in, uh, in uh, Grand Rapids. That's pretty quick um, to go, 
you know, what, 60 miles or whatever by the river. Um, so they're, they're coming in quick a lot of times, especially if, if nature tells them to, and, uh, and yeah, you can, you can catch some beauties way inland. I mean, it's, it blows my mind where I've seen fish and caught fish in the past. I remember you sent me to a spot. And and to be clear, I've found my own steelhead spots before. I keep saying that Matt sends me sends me places, but <laughs> <laughs> like I'm not just vulturing every spot that Matt fishes. But I remember you sent me to a spot once that like you had to walk through like a farmer's cow pasture, mm. and like I'm walking next to like three heifers that are standing out in the field just chewing on their cud as I'm walking by and my waders and just like lope it along like some dumpy piece of shit going back to the little creek back there. And, uh, I mean, there were fish back there, but like, yeah, they can be it. I mean, I remember that, that same day where we hopped around and we caught all those fish, you were running your, your stuff through anything that looked like a current break. It was like, there could be a fish here. There could be a fish there. There could be a fish there. Like, they could be anywhere where they want to sit. Yeah. And that really resonated with me. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't take much. I, I, the, the rule of thumb on the depth of the water only holds true for the generalization as to whether or not they will or won't be in a certain area or a certain body of water. Once they get in there, especially if they're moving around, if you get a high water situation where there's murk, I'm not fishing the holes. I'm fishing everything in between those holes. Um, because they're probably thinking about polishing some gravel. That's, that's where a lot of anglers, I think, stop thinking. Um, you know, they're like, oh, it's, it's too murky. Well, get up on something that's two and a half feet deep, because if it's too murky for those fish to see, and right now is their peak opportunity to feed, get on the front of that hole, get a little further up, get in a run that's two and a half or three feet deep. And, and as long as you can make yourself uh, comfortable with, you know, a leader that's maybe, again, two feet long, you can sit there and, and smash them half the time of your life. And everybody else is sitting in the holes confused as to why they're not even getting the bite. So being, being versatile and just thinking logically through, um, a lot of the, a lot of what's going on and what the fish could be doing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one last spot I want to mention as far as like high water or even normal water or whatever is don't, um, don't undervalue, uh, undercut banks. If -hmm. you've got a spot where, you know, there's an undercut bank, there's going to be a current break there. Um, there might not be a lot of fish, but if you're just going from one spot to another and you notice one, it's, it's not going to hurt to float your stuff by it. No undercut banks, root systems, anything that's kind of, um, a little hiding place, um, under the wall of the, the creek or river. Yeah. That's, that's always a win. Um, especially if you're, if you're trying out any other presentation, something that's a little bit more uh, active, that's where the majority of your fish are going to hide for, uh, kind of surprise attacks on anything that's coming through. Um, so if you want to get more active fish too, a lot of times they're sitting up underneath those banks, but, um, definitely a, a go-to spot as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, man, we've covered a lot. Um, let's, uh, Cody, you're the, you're the novice kind of taking everything in. Um, how you feeling? What are your questions? I'm good. Honestly, a lot of the questions I, uh, have had have been 
answered in conversation, so I haven't had to ask him. But no, I, I mean, I think it's been good. I've picked up a lot, so I've enjoyed it. It's been a good one for me to kind of just uh, sit back and take it all in. We got to go steelhead fishing this spring, Cody. So you guys, yeah, damn near I'll neighbors. Certainly take you up on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are I'm trying to think of something that we didn't cover that we should be covering. Uh, is there anything coming to mind, Matt? Um, you know, just, uh, make sure you're aware of any regulations that are changing. I know, um, possession. That's limits right. are changing. Possession limits did change, um, in Michigan. And, uh, so make sure you're reading up on your, your waterways. Uh, also gear restrictions are super important to, to note. Um, there are some areas where you can't use weighted hooks and in that category would be, uh, jigs. So, um, you know, just be, just be cognizant of that type of thing. Um, and making sure that you're respecting other anglers. I mean, there's a little bit of like an unspoken rule and it's kind of the same thing in all outdoor activities, I would say, but just, you know, give people space. If they're fishing a certain area, don't, don't come walking downstream and wrecking everything for somebody else. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, otherwise just pay attention to the, the weather patterns, um, and get ready. Cause that, that melt off is big. We, we should be seeing fresh fish now. Um, those layover fish are already there. We had kind of a low numbers year, um, in the fall this past year, but the fish were big, really big. Um, I've heard the, the manistee is chock full of fish right now. Um, so I can only assume that the majority of our main stems are pretty well loaded. Um, and, uh, and so we should see some of those tributaries also seeing fish very quickly. Although what I would also say is if you're used to fishing, um, March and early April, and you have a slower or less successful time this year than you have in years past, and then you stop fishing, keep fishing into late April, because I suspect that with these water temperatures, unless, um, unless we see a really, uh, serious warm up, I suspect that our, um, spawning season will be extended, which is actually really good for access to fish. Um, they won't be quick in quick out. Um, but, uh, I suspect it'll take a little bit longer to get up to that 50 plus degree range where they really start dropping and falling back. So, um, make sure you're paying attention to water temperatures in that case. And, um, also on that same note, if you are, um, used to watching fish spawn and kind of using that as your indication as to whether or not you should continue fishing them, um, hold in there for a few weeks after and keep fishing the holes. Drop back fish can be really, really fun. And they're really hungry because they switch gears from that spawn mode to, okay, now I'm super thin. I'm kind of emaciated uh, and, and I'm hungry. I'm ready to feed. And so you can get some, some seriously successful uh, fishing trips later in, in the month of April and even into May. Yeah. For sure. All good things to pay attention to, especially the, the rule changes, uh, especially when it comes to like gear restrictions. I know there's several areas in Michigan where you can't use certain tackle or, or whatever. The The limits, I saw they changed that. And, and like if you don't want to give your opinion on that, you don't necessarily have to. Um, I was kind of happy to see it. And, and that might be a shock to you, Matt, because I remember like 
I mean, I, if I caught a steelhead, I, I was keeping it, um, for the most part. I mean, I like steelhead tastes good. Uh, it's good on the smoker. It's good in, good in the oven, good in the frying pan, good in dips, whatever. Um, but you know, one steelhead, there's a lot of meat on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that it's varying for different, uh, different bodies of water or whatever, but I was happy to see that they made that change and, um, kind of put the future of the fish in front of, uh, you know, my freezer. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I, we're, we're seeing an increased number of anglers on the river. So naturally the take is just ridiculous. Um, not only that, but you know, spawning pressure, people pressure the spawning fish so much more heavily now, because I think that's the shortcut to success. Right. When you when you don't know a ton about steelheading, if you can see them there, maybe you can run something into their mouth mm-hmm. and uh, or maybe you can get close to their mouth or maybe somebody was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And and so like these fish get beat up um, all the time. And so it's it is nice. It does them a little favor. Honestly, I'd like to see more restrictions in our state uh, on most species. I, I think I'd like to see slots. I'd like to see. um better planting efforts. Um, uh, so there's, there's a lot of different things that I think, uh, could be better, but I think this is a good step in the right direction. You know, the, um, the cut in salmon planting, gosh, that's gotta be 10 years ago. Now, um, they ended up dropping the salmon plants, the, the alewives boomed, the fish got giant we're huge, seeing the, the product fish. of that like 40 40 pound salmon and um you know the numbers were a little bit lower there but now they're planting again the numbers are you know increasing you're getting kind of that and, and so it's a it's a never-ending battle to try to figure out where the balance is between too many predators in the system um and 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 then you've got a bunch more people coming at it. Social media, again, has never been more powerful. Um, and so you've got more and more people trying to get those photos. And if you can schwack three steelhead and chuck them on the ground and take a picture of it, and, um, you know, that is, there's a draw for that. And so I think, I think one fish is a, is a great change. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Matt, uh, before we finish up here, what are some things you guys got going on at Lake Effect for Steelhead and um, anything else you want to plug? Feel free. Okay. Uh, well, again, thanks guys for the opportunity. It means a lot to me and um, it's always a pleasure to chat with you fellas. Um, we've got Steelhead jigs. We've got 20 different variants right now, um, all at that 116th ounce with that size six uh, hook. So you don't get a lot of variety in size there, obviously. However, we do have um, a new summer line of baits coming out this year. Uh, finally pulling the trigger on that. And uh, it's been something that I've prototyped over the last couple of years. And really, finally, we have it dialed. Um, Three-inch and four-inch soft plastic uh, minnows um, scented glow with insertable rattles. Um, like a little fluke style kind of a deal? Yeah, like the similar to a Berkeley power, middle, power minnow. Um, and then we're actually doing, uh, Ned heads with them. Uh, and this is all kind of inspired by, I, I really switched over to, um, soft plastics for trout in a big way in the last two years. I'm kind of doing that behind the scenes a bit, um, and noticed a very high success rate 
uh, had a lot of success on steelhead with them um, this past fall in a, in a couple of quick moments. And so excited to drop those, uh, but a great multi, uh, multi-species opportunity there uh, for trout, walleye, uh, bass, you know, you name it. Um, so that's gonna be kind of our entrance uh, this summer. Great fall presentation for for steelhead and and resident trout in general. So uh, watch for those coming. Um, and yeah, and then next year. I was gonna say real go quick, ahead. going going back to our smallmouth episode that uh, we just did. Those Ned rigs, man, Ned rigs with a little minnow fluke on it. Those would be deadly yeah. for that too. I just want to throw that Killer. in there, kind of connect the two there a little bit. But yeah. Certainly some fun in the rivers with smallies and, uh, we're excited to see kind of how the big lake guys do on them. So, um, and then next year, probably some more steelhead stuff, kind of building that space back out. Um, it got dry for a little bit just because it's a tough, tough market to be in, um, with lead products like that. Um, but, uh, but it's, it's starting to grow again. And and so we're kind of breathing new life into that. So watch out for that in 2023. Awesome. Awesome. And they can find, they can find Lake Effect Lures on Instagram and Facebook just by searching that. Um, the handle for Lake Effect is, it's just at Lake Effect Lures, right? Yeah. Yep. We just recently changed that. So, um, at Lake Effect Lures, lakeeffectlures.com, uh, you can type in rbmjigs.com. All those domains will route you to, to the same website. So awesome. Awesome. Cody, any parting, any parting words, parting thoughts? No, it's been good. I've learned a lot. I always learn a lot when I listen to Matt, so uh, not surprised. I uh, definitely picked up some things for, for Steelhead that I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, kind of putting into practice. i um, excited to see what you've been able to do, you know, in the lake effect space, so that's been cool. Um, definitely look forward to supporting you there with some, some jig orders, so that will be happening. But, uh, yeah, just appreciate you coming on. I mean, I think it's always well-received. You're very well-spoken. Uh, you know, and, and I know I always learn a lot, so appreciate you taking the time out of your night to come do this with us. Uh, it's, honestly, I, I couldn't think of something better. It's a fun time again, chatting with you guys and, and I appreciate it. The, uh, it's a, it's a serious privilege for me. So thank you. Yeah, no, we're more than happy to have you. Well, folks, we'll find other reasons. I'm sure. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We'll, we'll get you on here again, <laughs> especially once you get into the, uh, you know, you're diving further into that walleye space. We'll have to talk ice walleyes and stuff like that next year and everything yeah. in between. So cool. Yeah. But, great. Uh, Can't wait. Yeah. Well, folks, um, thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.